you have a Bible with you, please open to the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 13. Matthew 13, or you can follow along in the bulletin. The same text is printed there. Uh, going through our study on the parables, and today we come to these two short parables that make a very similar point. Uh, the pearl of great price and the uh, treasure hidden in the field. Um, I don't know if any of you grew up in musical households um, and were forced to take piano lessons. Um, or if any of you grew up wanting to play the guitar. But I'm sure there are exceptions. What I've noticed is that people who are made to play the piano approached it as a discipline. Uh, they studied because they were told to. Their parents set timers for how long they had to practice every day. You sit down and practice. It's time. You've got to be ready for your lesson. It's a duty. Uh, you're going to get this down. It's a hard discipline. It's worth learning. You're going to get it. But guitar kids were nagging their parents for a long time saying, I want to get a guitar. Please let me get a guitar. I really want to get a guitar. They said, no, I, I don't know. I don't really want you to get a guitar. But they're begging. They finally talk the parents into it. And then they play it all the time. And they don't set aside time or set timers about how long they got to play. They want to play. They're playing in their room. Everyone's saying, could you go play that somewhere else because you're bugging us. You have to always play that thing. And they want to play it all the time. Now, why? Is it because the guitar is a better instrument than a piano? Be a hard case to make. I mean, cooler people play guitar. <laughs> so that's something. But, you know, I don't know. Most, a lot of kids I know wanted to play the guitar because they thought the youth leader was cool. That's not the best reason I've ever heard, you know. Uh, maybe they heard John Mellencamp's song about it, but um, what's the difference in the piano student and the guitar student there? They both have to learn. They both have to exert some kind of a discipline. It doesn't just come automatically because they want to play, but one of them does it out of love and joy and desire, and the other does it mostly out of duty. Um, do you think there's any chance that the Christian faith could ever be to you like the guitar player that plays out of duty. I mean, plays out of love, plays out of joy, plays because they want to, begs for it. Or is it always going to be what I ought to do, my duty? Um, believe what I'm supposed to believe, do what I'm supposed to do, make sure I hit all the marks. Is it possible that the Christian faith could ever be lived out of joy? lived because we want to do it. Well, that's what these parables are about, where Jesus is saying um, that's exactly what he expects our connection to him and to his movement in the world should be like, that it should be something that we're greedy for, that uh, we're motivated toward, that we're driven to by joy rather than by duty. And so that's what we're going to think about today. Let me pray for us first, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we ask that you would do what you say only you can do, which is to uh, unstop the ears of the deaf and open the eyes of the blind and come and make your word penetrate not just into our heads but also into our hearts. Uh, we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, read with me beginning at verse 44 of Matthew 13. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. 
if you remember several years ago, um, Woody Allen, uh, the director, um, was involved in a public scandal because of a relationship that he had with his grown uh, stepdaughter, or mostly grown stepdaughter. Uh, everybody uh, was shocked and seemed to despise him for it. And he justified his behavior this way. Some of you remember a famous quote. He said, the heart wants what it wants. Right? The heart wants what it wants. And most people heard that and thought, maybe you should want something different. Right? Don't want that. It sounded like he's a slave to his desires. Like, why can't you, you know, organize your life better than that instead of just be, being driven by what you want? And yet, um, what he said, the heart wants what it wants, is probably really true of all of us. That what we want, deep down, winds up driving what we do. Um, what we want, framed by some notion of the good life, some notion of what's uh, the best way to live, the most desirable future, frames our desires, and we live out of those desires. I mean, we tell ourselves we're rational. We tell ourselves that we're disciplined. We do pro-con lists and cost-benefit analyses and those kind of things to try to be dispassionate, right? But usually, the pro-con list is just a way for you to rationalize what you wanted to do in the first place. Right? Um, it's a way to make you think you're not just uh, being flighty, and following your desires, but we are people who do what we want to do. We do what we desire to do. That's the thing that shapes and motivates our behavior and ultimately determines what we're going to do and who we're going to be. We do what we want to do. So um, the parables, these two especially, Jesus um, is talking about how you can come to want a relationship with him and uh, a place in his movement and his kingdom uh, in an almost greedy way. That you can want this. That you have a picture of the good life that's so shaped by Him and what, he, and what He's doing in the world that that's what you want instinctively, viscerally. Uh, don't have to think about it twice. Want it. Just immediately want it. Like somebody who's looking for fine pearls and finds the great one. Or somebody who sees uh, somebody's... Uh, buried their money in the yard and forgot where it was or died or something and immediately covers it up and kind of sounds like insider trading but the point isn't the ethic of the money the point is the desire that drives the guy to go get the field and he says his kingdom can be like that instinctive level desire and uh, if you're like me you think eh, I hope that's true but I, I sort of doubt it it's not really the description I would give of how my life has gone as a Christian, uh, mine's been a whole lot more like piano practice than it has been by instinctive desire. But the parables are not so much about doing what you ought to do. The parables are about wanting what you ought to want. And that's kind of tricky because how do you change what you want? How do you, do you even have any control over what you want? Not doing what you ought to do, but wanting what you ought to want. And so here you have these two, these two stories, the pearl and the uh, treasure in the field. You've got buyer's euphoria going on. The boat salesman told me about buyer's euphoria one time. He said, sometimes somebody comes in the door and you know they're buying a boat just by the look on their face. That, you know, 
all of the reasons not to buy a boat have already been solved in their heads before they got there. And now they're just, yeah, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it. Any negative information just goes out the other ear because they're going to buy that boat. And so this is money you spend like on a boat. This isn't money you spend like on a root canal. You know, you'll spend money on a root canal. Um, and not uh, totally reluctantly. You think, I actually believe in dental hygiene and, and dentistry and the negative consequences are pretty bad of not getting the root canal. But, oh, don't you hate spending money on a root canal? It's like, ah, I'm paying for this. This hurts. And I don't even want it. But I guess it's the right thing to do, so I'll pay for it. But boat money is different. Wow. <laughs> I'm getting a boat. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, money. Yeah, here's the money. I'm getting a boat. And Jesus is saying, your connection to him can really be boat money level, not root canal spending level. Which, again, it's, it's, a, it's a striking thing. I don't think it's self-evident that that's true. I don't think that many Christians would tell you that that's their experience. But he says the kingdom of heaven is like that. That's his simile. kingdom of heaven is like these things. So, first question is, what does he mean? What's the kingdom of heaven? Uh, and the other gospel writers will say kingdom of God. Usually Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience apparently and says kingdom of heaven because it's a little more palatable to their ears. I think that's true. That sounds truthy, doesn't it? But he says kingdom of heaven when the other gospel writers say kingdom of God. But that's all Jesus' shorthand, this kingdom talk, for his project to fix the world. Right? We human beings rebelled against God. We decided we would rule our own lives in autonomy and we broke our relationship with God and we broke everything in the world as collateral damage in our war with God. And Jesus has come to rescue us, to reconcile us to God, to die for our sins, to reconnect us to God and forgive us, um, but then also to fix the world we broke. And ultimately, we'll live in a new creation when Jesus' work is through, where we'll get along with each other and we'll be psychologically whole, the environment won't be a threat to us, and we'll be re-knit to God fully and single-mindedly forever. So he's going to put the world back right, right side up the way it's supposed to be. That's his kingdom. And um, that kingdom, he says, that's, it's a general project of Christianity, right? It's the, it's the story of the world that, that God is rescuing us, setting us back up right. But the kingdom he sets up is a rival to other kingdoms in the world. It's a rival to nations and a rival to value systems in the world. It's a rival to other versions of the good life in the world so that when we enter Jesus' kingdom we submit to him as king and we repudiate our old loyalties right we leave behind our other loyalties our other nations our other visions of the good life our other values and we say I'm in with you now your vision of the good life your values and you as king and so Jesus is always telling people this is what it looks like to enter this kingdom it's going to be radically transformative for you and so to buy the field, in this sense, is to convert and become a Christian. But it's also to enter into this process of retooling, where you have uh, your imagination changed about what the good life is, uh, what's worth living for and dying for, uh, what's worth pursuing in our lives, what's worth imposing on our children. All those things are different in Jesus' kingdom, and we sign up for all of those uh, when we become a Christian, when we enter the kingdom. So that's what the kingdom is. He says... Um, uh, you're supposed to enter it with joy. So why would anybody be so excited about the kingdom of Jesus? I can see someone being dutiful and religious, right? Well, I know I'm supposed to be good. I know I'm supposed to be nice to God. I know I'm supposed to obey Him and defer. But 
Why would somebody be this excited about it? Why would somebody have buyer's euphoria about the kingdom? Well, you, can, you could ask pretty much any Christian here. They tell you that, um, that even with our half-hearted uh, approach to it and our half-hearted grip on Jesus and his kingdom, uh, we know that this is what we've longed for our entire lives. That what he's come to do and what he's promised is everything we've ever wanted, whether we knew it or not. I mean, every other longing you've ever had in your life, Christians have come to know, is either like a hint of the real longing uh, that's met in Jesus, or it's a counterfeit of what Jesus promises. Like Our other longings are just clues for us about what we really want, what we really need, what will really fulfill us. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He's given us a relationship with our Creator that's actually an intimate relationship, a relationship of love. Uh, closeness to him. We're accepted and welcomed by him. We live under his approval and under his smile, which is a remarkable thing. We we actually have clean consciences because we've been forgiven by him, which is an amazing thing. You know, people live in anxiety all their lives seeking after that. Uh, And then we have this notion that we could be truly human for the first time, that all this dignity that seems to elusively be around us, this sense that we're made for something that has substance and glory to it, is actually not a tease, but is real. That a human being with all the potential we have of creativity, the potential we have uh, to live in deep, loving relationship with each other, the potential we have to be whole psychologically, the, to, to build civilization, to cultivate the world for God and do what's beautiful and noble, All these things uh, are not just teases for us. They're not just things that we look back on our lives and regret uh, having experienced so little of. These are things that Jesus promises will be our experience. We'll be truly human for the first time when he's finished with his work in us. And we can begin on it now. And it's the best thing in our lives. Ask If you came with a Christian friend, ask him. It's it's the best thing in our lives. It's the thing we've always, always longed for. It's our true home. It's what we're made for. It's to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. And uh, none of that's hyperbole. None of that's exaggeration. Um, we mean every word of that, specifically. But if that's true, then well, why wouldn't somebody want it? All, right? all, that, all that does sound good, right? Why wouldn't anybody want to come into Jesus' kingdom and experience these things? And there are a lot of reasons, really. Some of which really come out here. You know, um, when you think about not having the joy and interest in buying his kingdom, you realize that there's a natural skepticism that comes up when someone promises you the moon. Someone says, wow, you can have your true home and every longing you've ever had will be met in the face of Jesus and uh, you'll be the person you've always dreamed you could be and more and your life will be great and you'll live in a world that works right and you won't die and you won't, oh, Jesus will wipe away the tears and there's the feast of rich food and wine that he said he was going to prepare for us and Isaiah and all this. And any, anybody that hears that should say, you know, where's my wallet? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not a sucker. You sound like a con man. <laughs> And there's a natural skepticism there. There probably should be. If you don't feel a little bit of that skepticism, you're not listening to what Jesus promises in his kingdom. It's over the top good. So you should be skeptical because nothing's that good that you expect. And you think, I don't know, maybe that pearl is actually a cultured pearl, not a real pearl. Maybe that, maybe that money buried in that yard is, is actually counterfeit money. Oh, I'm not so sure about this, we say. And we've, we've had that skepticism naturally ever since Eve in the Garden of Eden, who was told that she's not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, 
And then she explained that to the serpent. She said, yeah, I was told that um, I can't eat of that or even touch it or I'll die. And, you know, she embellishes the law. She was told not to eat of it. She wasn't told not to touch it. But it was sort of like adding, adding the restriction of I'm not even supposed to touch it is sort of saying, yeah, I don't know why God's actually being stingy about that. I wonder why he's holding out on me. I wonder if he really wants my good or not. And Satan plays off of that and says, oh, yeah, yeah, you'd be like him if you ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You'd be like him. Man, he didn't want that. He doesn't want that for you. And so he's, he's holding out on you. Um, if you follow him, he's not going to ennoble you. He's not going to make your life more fulfilled. He's going to take away your chance to have the good life. He's going to limit you in ways that will cut you off from the potential of the good life. And uh, you best not submit yourself to him or your life is going to be diminished. Right? And don't people think that way? If I submit myself to Jesus and obey him with some rigor and lay down my life for his sake in the world, then it's going to make my life crummy. I'm going to miss out on the pleasures of life. I'm going to miss out on the potentials and fun of life that I could have otherwise had. I'm afraid to let him uh, dictate what happens in my life because I think, I think he'll hold out on me. I think he'll diminish me. And every imaginative picture you have from the culture of the Christian life is a hamburger bee life. Anybody of you old enough to remember the old Wendy's commercials with hamburger A and hamburger B? Um, Wendy's was saying their, their burger was hamburger A. You know, it was, it was freshly cooked and never frozen. It had lettuce and tomato and everything on it. It looked good. And then there was hamburger B, which was like a basic hamburger from McDonald's. It just had a bun and a piece of meat that had been frozen before. Well, you know, it just looks very plain. And so they'd ask people, which hamburger do you want, hamburger A or hamburger B? And in the commercials, everybody would pick hamburger B, the bad one, and look like idiots. And so that was their premise was, come on, anybody with sense would want hamburger A. Well, you think about how Christianity is expressed in the culture. And the idea of the American dream and the good life of what it means to really thrive and really be fulfilled and really happy here. Uh, any Christian that enters that picture at all is a hamburger B character, right? It's like, yeah, well, that's fine for you. That's nice, but wow, you know, you don't have much aspiration, do you? <laughs> you know, humanness is so rich and full, and you're just wanting to be narrow and closed off and world-denying as a Christian. It, it, God must not want you to have any kind of fulfillment in your life. Uh, so that fuels our skepticism, right? This, the kingdom isn't all that. I'm not going to be greedy and euphoric about getting the kingdom if it's just going to be constraining and limiting for me. I mean, and it's so expensive too, right? It's like, I mean, other con men don't ask so much. Bernie Madoff only wanted your life savings. <laughs> Jesus wants way more than that. He wants your passport. He wants your family connections. He wants your time. He wants control over your romantic life. He wants control over your career choices and your ethics. He wants control over your kids. And he wants your life savings. And you're thinking, wow, I, you know, the, it's quite a thing to enter his kingdom because you're giving away so much of yourself, so much control of your life. Uh, it's hard to think that you could ever be euphoric about that. You'd really have to be knuckled under to even do it under compulsion. And he's saying, I want you to do it out of joy. I want you to do it out of joy. In the parable, it costs both these people everything to get the treasure or the pearl. 
But there's no calculation in their minds. They just want it. Their, their question isn't how much does it cost. Their question is only is it worth it. And the answer is yeah, it's worth it. I don't care what it costs. If it costs everything, fine. It's worth it. But the question is worth. Is it worth it? Not is it too expensive or not. They don't do cost-benefit analyses. They just say, how fast can I get liquid? Pennies on a dollar, baby. Uh, come get what I've got. Uh, you can have it all, my empire of dust. <laughs> uh, I don't need it anymore. I've got something I want more. So, um, how's that happen? I mean, you have to be convinced that the good life picture that Jesus is painting is better than the good life picture of the American dream. His good life has to be better. Or you're never going to think this way. And it's hard because we're skeptical. Most of us can live so close to fulfillment with the American dream. I mean, that close. Like, you give me three or four things I could change in my life and I'd be there. Because my life's super pleasant. More than most, most people who've ever lived in the world, my life is pleasant. And this American dream thing is so, so, so close to working out for me. Or it seems like it is. Just a little more money. Just a little change in my health. Just a little bit of change in my career. Just a little bit of change in my romance. And I'm there. And so when I hear Jesus talk about his kingdom and how my love should drive me to his kingdom, what I really am saying in my heart is, well, I'm already spoken for. I appreciate the offer. But I've already given my heart away. I've given my heart to comfort and pleasure. I've given my heart away to accomplishment and respect. I've given my heart away to my family and to my children or to a lover. I'm spoken for. So thank you for offering me your kingdom, but I'm good. I already love something else. And that's the, that's the place all of us are in naturally. We are slaves to our desires. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin, Jesus said. We read earlier. We're slaves to our desires. Uh, Theologically speaking, this is the doctrine of inability. That human beings are free to choose what they want to choose, but human beings are not free to want what they want to want. Did you follow that? <laughs> We're not free to want what we want to want. Our desires are bent towards autonomy. Our desires are bent away from God. And so our desires are broken. They're disordered. And it's not in us to fix them. As far as we're concerned, uh, we're already spoken for, and our love is already given away. So, uh, how can you possibly change your desires? How do you change what you want? How do you want something different? And the first answer really is that God can do this. Um, in a way that's supernatural. He says, he's the one who unstops the ears of the deaf and opens the eyes of the blind. Uh, it's a supernatural thing for someone to want Jesus and his kingdom. If you find yourself interested and intrigued by what the picture of the good life that Jesus paints, you are probably have come under the influence of God himself and his grace uh, because it's not something we naturally want or naturally desire. But God can do this. Um, there's some magic involved. There's supernatural things involved when anyone becomes a Christian. Right? And that's why it's a gift of God to us when we become a Christian. It's not something we earn. Both, both people discovered uh, the treasure. They didn't earn the treasure. 
And that's how Christians find themselves too. We did not earn these things. So Jesus, grace, supernatural is part of the answer how your desires change. And uh, you can't really control that, right? You pray, you ask God to give you that, you ask him to stir up desire in you. But that's under his control. But that's not the whole story. Um, Because our desires are also trainable as human beings in ways that Jesus urges us toward. Our desires are trainable. Do you like red wine? No, then don't listen to this illustration if you don't like red wine because it makes no sense. Um, A lot of people really love red wine. Um, I don't know anybody who liked it the first time. Why in the world would you try something, not like it, and then keep trying it until you liked it, and until you actually find yourself loving it and sometimes craving it? What? How does that happen? Um, you know, you used to like Bartles and James wine coolers, and now you don't. But now you like red wine that, was, that just felt uh, so strong and harsh when you first tried it. Your desires have been trained. I don't know what motivated you. Maybe you thought cool people drink red wine or enough smart people seem to say this is fantastic or you read Jesus saying this is the emblem of my kingdom is this great wine. You think I guess I better get used to it. But whatever your motivation was, you thought I'm going to stick with it and I'm going to train myself to like this. And you did. What about this? Do you believe... um, what, What do you think about arranged marriages? Is there anything less American? than an arranged marriage. Is there any more absolutely uh, predictable trope in a drama than the person trying to escape the terrible, oppressive strictures of arranged marriage and traditional culture so they can follow their heart to love? Right? I mean, this is, that's apple pie right there, baby. You know, that's American. Um, how in the world do they work then? Because apparently they work just as well or maybe better than our marriages do, that were formed in love. Um, They work. How? Because your loves are trainable. Loves are trainable. Your desires can be trained and changed. And uh, that's a lot of what Christian formation is. Growing into maturity as a Christian is having your loves trained by God and by the things he's put into our lives that help us become trained to change our loves. Part of what we do to train our loves is deconstructive. Right? We tear down the picture of the good life that we had bought before. We run down our old girlfriend. <laughs> we say, this is what I used to love. This is what I used to think would make me happy. This is what I used to think was fantastic. But now I'm poking holes in it. And I'm saying, what is that really? What's, what are you promising really? What's the vision of the good life that you were trying to sell me? Where were you aiming my love arrows before uh, telling me that I'd be happy and fulfilled? Because those things haven't worked. Those things did not make me happy and fulfilled. They haven't made anybody happy and fulfilled except the liars and commercials. right? Um, don't try to aim my love arrows at something that's not going to be worth my love. And so... We say, wow, was I happy? Was it working when I was pursuing that other good life? Or was I just a character in the brave new world who was uh, uh, delighted by his captivity and sedated into not seeing it? A slave to my desires, but not realizing I was a slave. 
Why did those other that good life cover me in debt and anxiety and shame? Why it promised the good life and it gave me anxiety and shame and debt? Uh, so we're de- deconstructing together, saying that vision of the good life. That king was a bad king. That kingdom was a bad kingdom, and I don't want it anymore. And I'm still living where everybody's talking about it, and it looks really normal to me Monday through Friday. Uh, but it's not normal, and it's not true, and I don't want to believe it anymore. I don't want to pursue it anymore. And we help each other with that, talking to each other about it, poking holes uh, for each other's sake in the facade of the good life. But then there's a positive side, too. We deconstruct on one side, and then we do heart washing on the other. I was going to say brainwashing, but it has a really negative connotation, and it doesn't get as deep as I want to go with this. Heart washing. We wash our hearts by uh, cleaning them, by, by focusing on what the good life really is. Jesus' desirable good life that he's given us. Just like you do with your kids. You train your kids what's worth loving. All right. So here, eat this food. It's really good. Um, and they go, ooh, and you go, mmm. <laughs> it's really good. One day you're going to like it. One day when you have taste buds, you'll really enjoy your life. Trust me. And so we teach them to love what's good and beautiful. We give them music that's good to listen to and say, isn't this awesome? Isn't this great? Don't you love this? Um, Give them books. We point out things that are beautiful when we walk with them. We point out human greatness when we see it. And we say, look, look, love that. Love that. That's That's worth loving right there. We do it with our kids. And we do it with each other too. Mainly in the Christian life, we do it through worship. Uh, That's why worship is so central um, in the Christian's formation. Not because it's always interesting. Not because it's always exciting. I mean, most times if you've been a Christian for long, you don't learn anything new at church. When you're new, you think, whoa, this is great, I'm going to take notes. After a while, you're like, yeah, I've been knowing that. I don't, that's good and all, but you know, um, at least try to, you know, freshen it somehow for me. You don't learn new things and say, that's why church is great. That's not the point. Um, the church is like guitar practice. Um, you're teaching your fingers to move instinctively so that when you hear something in your head, you can play it without having to think about the first fret and the second string and the third. You practice so you can play. And uh, a lot of what we do at church is practice. It's like we're inculcating the rituals of belief, the the uh, flavor of the good life to train our senses so that it becomes instinctive and visceral for us. It becomes, I don't have to think twice about it appealing to us. Um, And we learn that over time through what we do together when we worship. So, um, and it's a detox as well where we come and say, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. The thing that's really going to satisfy me is Jesus and his kingdom. That's that's what's going to fill me up when I eat it. I'm not going to spend my bread for what spend my money for what's not bread anymore, and my labor for what doesn't satisfy anymore. This is where my soul's satisfied is with Jesus and His kingdom. So, um, it's like guitar practice, and not it's not uh, pure joy. There's some discipline in it, uh, but it's driven a lot by love as well. It's driven a lot by love. So the, the classic example of this I put in the quotes at the beginning of the bulletin is C.S. Lewis's comment about our, our being too easily pleased. God doesn't think our desires are too strong, they're too weak. We're like children making mud pies in the slums because we can't imagine the splendors of a holiday at sea. Surely, if you've been around the church for a while, you've heard that. 
But it's the, it's the point we need to make. Our desires aren't the problem. It's the aims of our desire that are the problem. Our love arrows are being shot at the wrong things. And they need to be shot at the good life that Jesus offers in relationship with him. So where this leaves you, if you're, if you're not already a convinced Christian, if you haven't entered the kingdom and been baptized into Jesus' kingdom and put faith in him and you know, gone through the whole initiation there, um, I'll just ask you this. Would you doubt your doubts a little bit? Would you question the good life that you have bought into? And just ask, am I spending my money for something that is actually satisfying me or not? Am I giving my labor for something that actually fills me in his bread, or am I not? Because by personal experience and by the authority of what he says, I can tell you that Jesus is a better king than the one you're serving now, and his kingdom is a better country than the one you have allegiance to now. And he wants you with him. And I or whoever brought you to church today would be happy, I'm sure, to have any conversations you want to have in the process of coming to faith in him. And would love to walk through that with you. If you're already a Christian, um, and like most of the friends I have that are Christians, the Christian life is way more like piano lessons than, than guitar. <laughs> it's, it's more duty than delight. And uh, I just want to encourage you that Jesus wouldn't have said this if a Christian life driven by joy weren't possible. Like he seems to think it's normal. But a Christian life motivated by joy is actually a reality not just a tease not just something for super christians not just for people who have behaved better than you have your whole life uh not just for people who haven't ruined things like you've ruined things but for any disciple any christian uh the idea of a life motivated by joy is a reality and don't give up on that don't become hopeless about that don't think that just because it's felt dutiful most of the time so far, that that's your future. Um, we're promised in his kingdom that we're going to love him with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. Every fiber of our being, single-mindedly. And that can begin and increase now. Really can. So, other thing is, don't be, uh, don't be afraid to sell everything. Don't be afraid to sell everything. You've got the one of the best, most comfortable lives any human beings have ever had. And you think, gosh, to follow Jesus, do I really have to sell it? I mean, if I were a refugee and I'd already lost all my stuff and I was running for my life, and you said, I have to push all the chips in to follow Jesus, I'd say, fine. You know, no big deal. What am I losing? But you have a lot to lose. And um, I just want to say, at the same time, you don't have anything to lose. Jesus' kingdom is better. He's a better king. What you get from him is better than what you sell to get him. And there's a tremendous freedom, and I think you know this in your heart of hearts, a tremendous freedom to looking at his kingdom and just being able to say, I don't care how much it costs. I just want to know if it's worth it. And it's worth it. Let's pray.